Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Matthew Moore. He is principal scientist at Venuvia. We're going to talk to him about the work they're doing in the sort of manufacturing production side of the cannabis world. And actually, they do a little bit in psychedelics at some point, but really kind of understanding what does it mean to produce these cannabinoids you know, at scale for production, for the market, dealing with all the regulatory issues, everything you know, with FDA, DEA. There's a lot of complicated pieces in play right now, obviously, federal legislation uh, aside. You know, dealing with all the states, dealing with all the folks that are in the space and making sure you're producing the right product in the right way under the right guidelines for production. And we're going to talk about the world they're, they're working in, particularly around CBD and the work they're doing with a couple of different companies. So I'm excited about this. This is always, I think, uh, you know, one of these underappreciated parts of the industry, kind of the heavy lifting that happens sort of behind the scenes and, and really goes into the production side. And it's a really dynamic part of the industry right now. A lot of different guidelines coming down. You've got state level issues. You've got Federal issues, you've got FDA that is weighing in on things uh, on the various kind of cannabis markets, CBD otherwise. So we should learn a little bit here and, and I think appreciate um, what it's like in the world of cannabis. So with that, 
Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So before we kind of get into Benuvia and everything you're doing today, let's get a little bit of the background. How how did you get into this uh, sort of to the science side? How do you get involved in cannabis? Give us the backstory. So I went to grad school for chemistry. I've always been interested in, in doing synthetic chemistry. And while I was in grad school, largely focused on small molecules and unique materials. And then after I finished that, I went into working for a startup on different reactor designs. And one of the applications was in the cannabis space where I then spent a lot of time reading up, learning, educating myself on, you know, really what was known about the cannabinoids at the time, starting in 2018, 2019, um, which is a lot more than you would expect based off of the illegality. But just because it's schedule one doesn't mean you can't do research on it. So there is some primary research that's been done throughout the years, especially in other countries like Israel has been focused on it for a very long time. Sure. Yeah. And so I guess what's been interesting about getting into the cannabis space for you? So it's a it's an interesting market where there is a ton of science to be done and a ton of good science that needs to be done. And there are a ton of people who want to do it that don't know how. And so a lot of it has been with trying to make sure that people understand the the field that they're playing in, especially if you look at like sort of the investment strategy going into when the hemp bill was passed, all the investment that went on that was exclusively in, you know, in the, in the growing and extraction and, and production of isolate, which didn't just bottom out prices and it wasn't very forward thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and right. So as uh, being part of a pharmaceutical company, we can't think in one or two year terms. That's not a viable strategy for us. Mm-hmm. And so what, I guess, how do you see the more kind of pharmaceutical side of this versus the, I don't know, call it the traditional cannabis market. I mean, how do you kind of approach this given kind of the pharmaceutical lens that you're looking at? Well, so it's, they're separate playgrounds, basically. You're looking at something that is, so for CBD uh, as a, as a drug, as a prescription, um, which is why the FDA doesn't want to just make it available over the counter because it is currently in clinical trials for other indications. And once it's a prescription drug, they have a really hard time saying, oh, let me just say that it's okay for any human to eat any amount of this. Mm-hmm. And the same goes with THC. It's been in Marinol form since the mid-80s, since before the endocannabinoid system was even discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been treating some these symptoms with these drugs. And so they, it's incredibly important that they're super pure because if you're following the FDA guidelines, right, uh, or what... A subset of that is the ICH guidelines being that it needs to be 98% pure, at least no more than 20 impurities, and no one of those impurities can be more than 0.1%. And that is an incredibly hard specification to meet. And, And why is that? Why is it hard to meet that specification? So especially with these plant extracts, there are so many. So if if you, if you heard of cannabidiverin, it is a, it's the little brother to CBD. It has, so CBD has a C5 tail on it. It has uh-huh. five carbons. Cannabidiverin has three carbons on its tail. But functionally, it, it plays very similar roles in structure reactivity. Whenever you have crystals, it will include the C3 tail in the crystals. However, it has different binding constants. It has different pharmacokinetics, but it is still biologically active. And so now you have, you have two molecules in there that both are biologically active and you don't know if, you know, if, and this is, this is not saying it, this is just a hypothetical absurdity. If CBD V is 10,000 times more potent than CBD and there's 0.1% of it in there, 
then effectively you have the same dose. Yeah. And so that's the type of thing you want to avoid whenever you're working with pharmaceuticals because you're specifically trying to study what does this one molecule do. And so what's the benefit of, then what is your approach? I mean, given this kind of world and how things are playing out, what is your kind of view of the future on how CBD, THC, you know, the other cannabinoids, like how do you see this kind of evolving as a market? So there will definitely, right, there, there's no control over demand. That, that exists regardless of, 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 of whatever laws may be there, right? Yeah. That, that you can see that with the, the felt drug on board, that there's never been a lack of demand for these drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and so then inherently there's going to be a supply one way or another. I think that all of these should be legalized. I think that there are specific things that need to be studied, especially things around anxiety, cancer treatments, anything to do with pain, right? Like these are all, those are claims that you're making that are FDA claims that need to be validated in order to justify saying, which, you know, I don't really want to go into the insurance part of it all, but <laughs> in order for a group to say, I'm going to pay for this for you, it has to have, there has to be some good evidence to say that it's going to work. And so, so our role is to make clinically pure cannabinoids. And what, and what is that? This, this is the no, no more than 20 no more, no 1.1%. That's when you say clinically right. pure or, or products for pharmaceutical use, that's, that's the guideline that you're meeting. Yes. And Got it. so generally the isolate that you'll find on the market for CBD is around 99.3% pure. Um, okay. And that is just a nature of there is some C3 and C4 versions of the molecule in there that mm-hmm. don't purify readily out without extensive... Um, laborious effort yeah yeah. and so our our methodology actually allows us to get to a 99.99 percent pure cbd and that's what's going into the drug product that the patient receives got it and and so and who are you working with who who's at the end of the day who's your customer who do you provide this to so particularly right now we're working with a company uh called radius health uh they purchased this the uh ip around White Prater Willy syndrome, which is a childhood obesity problem. It essentially these children okay. are are driven like ravenous to uh, chase down food, and like you're like you think of think of like a dog that has been starved and goes and tears into the pantry and eats yeah. everything and, and shreds it, and like these children have no self control over it, and and it's not really well understood, but the CBD seems to attenuate that. There's a lot of there's a ton of receptors that. Um, CBD and THC respond to apart from the endocannabinoid system, and mm-hmm. so they they play some sort of role that helps to um, helps calm, to attenuate calm that down. Hunger. Yes. Yeah. And what? Um, so you, so you're primarily looking for particular conditions that you can then create product for, do research against, and find valid formulations that are going to address these conditions that you're researching. Correct. So, so then once you provide the product, are you getting involved in the research side? I'm just kind of figuring out where the boundaries of your business are and, and what do you do and what do you not do? So our business model looks more like developing the phase one type of, of drug product. Okay. Um, so we, we produce our own synthetic APIs, so the active pharmaceutical ingredient. And then we also have in-house drug product formulation. So we do all of our own stability testing and um, we partner with uh, research organizations for toxicity studies, doing essentially the very first steps to get into a clinical trial and then spin that out ideally and and find a, comp- a virtual company like Radius that would like to purchase it. Got it. So you're, you're doing this primary research 
and then creating an asset that someone can purchase or you can license or you, you develop a deal for that allows them to go to phase two clinical trials. Correct. Got it. Okay. And, and so what is your facility and what does your team look like? Like how, how many people, what is your facility design? What are the capabilities that you've, you've created in-house? So we have an 84,000 square foot facility. It's in Round Rock, Texas, just north of Austin. We have quite, it's split roughly uh, 60-40 towards API production and drug product formulation. We have currently, so we started in 2019, at the beginning of 2019, and we currently have about 56 employees, I think. We run 24-7 on the production of our APIs, and then I'm on a research team for doing the actual development of the chemistry that we pass to the API production team. And there, I'm part of a I'm, I'm part of a four member team, and we do all of the development work in house. Got it. And what have been the big challenges? I mean, you've been doing this for a couple of years now. Where have been the bottlenecks, the obstacles? Give us a little sense of of how this has played out for you. So I think I, w- I would say it's probably a little bit overshadowed by all of the other goings on in the world over the past year and a half, especially to do with, so we wanted to do, we're we're working on trying to expand our facility um, or not really expand. um, We're trying to remodel some of the interior of our building. And obviously there was quite a bit of damage done to the infrastructure in central Texas uh, earlier this year Uh, that has made, and and then you have people like Tesla moving to Austin. Um, Basically getting any commercial work done. It's incredibly difficult. So that's probably actually our biggest hurdle, and, uh, and it's not even one related to the field. Um, yeah. Supply chain, supply chain, and uh, getting stuff built out has been incredibly difficult. But as far as if if you're if you're looking at getting into this kind of field, the hardest part is that these molecules really don't behave like you would expect most organic molecules to behave. And so until you've dealt with a lot of different crude mixtures of THC and CBD and all of their different byproducts and uh, degradants, mm-hmm. then, then it's really hard to explain to someone how to handle them. We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. And now back to our program. And so, and what are, I mean, how many steps does this have to go? Well, I guess explain a little bit. Are you, you're getting raw biomass or what are you starting with? What are the basic steps you move something through to create the, the product that you're sending you're using for the clinical research? So for the clinical research, that's all synthetic. So we start with fully synthetic starting materials. We have a one side of the molecule is derived. Essentially, you split it into the terpene side of the CBD and the, um, and the aromatic side. And the terpene comes from lemon extract, uh, a limonene derivative. So that way you get the stereo uh-huh. chemistry you want. So that way you don't end up with things like cis-CBD cis and um, there's various different isomers. So we start with a chirally pure starting material, so that way everything that comes out is also pure. Um, yep. And then we do one step after that to cleave a group off and release the CBD. And so it's a two-step system that we're working on converting to a continuous flow, so that way we can actually meet the uh, large-scale demand for, mm-hmm. for this synthetic CBD. Yeah. We, we do also collect... Um, we, we do get in phytoisolate, so we... we all right, we have a phytobotanical to pharmaceutical program mm-hmm. try to where we can try to get your phytoisolate to ICH compliance for, of course, a premium markup on that. Um, yep. But the prices, once you get it to a pharmaceutical grade, right, then the price and the value of it goes up quite significantly. Yeah. Um, 
And so that's, that's another thing that we do. But whenever we get into anything like that, for us to bring in any chemicals or reagents or even phytoisolate, we have to validate who we're buying it from and that they have control processes and control parameters in place to make sure that there isn't going to be some mysterious uh, unknown that shows up two months into the stability process after it's in, after it's in drug product and in patients. So it. it's, it's about, there's, it is very important in the pharmaceutical world to keep track of basically everything from start to finish. The amount of paperwork that goes into it is tremendous. I'm sure. I mean, that, that's true with any drug or is that, I mean, it's just particularly true with cannabis. That would be true with any drug. The cannabis has uh, an extra side because you need good agricultural practices and then you have to have your good manufacturing practices and the extraction and you have to, right, so this requires consistent SOPs, adherence yeah. to the SOPs and, and all of the uh, stuff that, that employees hate hearing. <laughs> and how... I mean, how, how do you confirm that, you know, one of your suppliers is following these procedures or has the, the appropriate processes in place? So we do a site validation. So we, we, we send one of our quality assurance people to a facility and we look at the processes that they have in place. We see how they do everything, make sure that they have all of their documentation in order. It's relatively easy to find out if someone is playing the game or playing you. Mm, interesting. And, and how often do you have to recheck that? I mean, this is, I'm assuming this is a you have to do something in the beginning, but how do you ensure that it stays that way? You know, I don't know the timeline off uh, the top of my head. I know we do annual. I don't think yeah. it's required more frequent than that. We generally also try to make sure that we're staying with people. Like we stay in constant communication with our suppliers to, you know, make sure that there's no deviations from their plans. Mm -hmm. uh, so that way we don't run into any problems on our end. Yep. And so what, uh, I mean, as you, I'm curious about kind of demar market size, market demand. I mean, how are you seeing the last couple of years, what do you think the next couple of years are going to bring? I mean, what, what's been kind of the, the demand levels for this grade of product? So that, that, that's kind of a difficult question because right now there's not a whole lot of clinical trials for CBD apart from this current, the current ones that we're supplying in, in the U.S., right? So there are international trials as well, and there are other forms of CBD that people are interested in getting into clinical trials. The, what determines the size of the market is what indications can be serviced. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone talks about CBD for anti-anxiety. I don't know that anyone has it in clinicals yet. I, I don't check it every week to find out. But mm -hmm. whoever gets that will have the golden goose because if you're a doctor and, and you have something with a safety profile of CBD and someone has anxiety, why wouldn't you start there? Yeah, exactly. Um, Take so, two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it really... it. It's anywhere from, you know, like the, the global consumption could be on the order of, you know, 20,000 pounds to, you know, 20,000 tons, depending on what kind of indications it can be prescribed for. The endocannabinoid system is ubiquitous throughout the body. And in fact, the CB1 and CB, uh, yeah, CB1 receptor is one of the most prominent ones in the brain overall. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it's hard to say what the limit of, of the market could be, but to say that it's, going to, that it's here to stay is a certainty for sure yeah yeah i mean if you really get in a situation producing tons of this stuff i mean what what does that facility look like like what what would you have to have you know to be able to produce that level of volume so we have we're looking at expanding but one of our primary focuses in research is to um, convert to a continuous flow methodology doing large-scale batch reactions is it's a little bit more laborious just because you're working with such... So if you're working with a 1,000-liter reactor or a 1,000-gallon reactor, 
then you just have so much volume of material at any one time that it, it becomes a hazard on its own to deal with just mm -hmm. by the sheer size. Switching to continuous flow, you really only you, you generally go from tank to tank, and so you don't have more than a hundred liters of volume at any one time. You switch out a tank, Got um, it. so that's the, in which case you're only really looking at a small room. A thousand gallon reactor requires an entire room build out, and is it essentially that's the type of reactor that you put into an area and then you build the room up around it to make it uh, <laughs> to make sure that there's no contamination in it. Interesting. And what are the, the other challenges of these facilities? You mentioned contamination. Are there other kind of regulatory issues, structural issues. I mean, what are these? I mean, I know a lot of a lot of facilities, production facilities in cannabis have had problems getting, you know, local ordinances and, you know, fire department approvals and, you know, health safety welfare, you know, depending on what you're working with and combustibility, flammability, things like that. Where do you fit or how complicated is is it for you to set up these facilities from a, you know, local regulation point of view? So, for our particular facility, we have a mature facility already, so we, we have a good relationship with our fire marshal, and that's not really too much of an issue for us due to the... So, you need a good engineer is basically what that comes down to. Um, uh -huh. Things like three-hour burn walls to protect your solvents from your production areas and making sure that you don't have too much of any given solvent. And so, we, we actually have an EHS staff that, we, uh, that, that goes around and makes sure that we're compliant. Not just, you know, for the sake of compliance, but for the actual sake of safety, because yep. having, you know, 500 gallons of heptane sitting in a corner can rapidly become not a good situation mm -hmm. if it's not done appropriately. Yeah. Um, so we have annual DEA audits, annual FDA audits. Actually, the FDA is if someone complains, I believe. Um, and so it's on demand. You, yeah. Yeah. And then they'll randomly, they randomly check They'll, you may get an email saying, oh, we're going to check you this time or to this year. But it's, I don't think you're on like a set cycle because our document, essentially your documentation is required to be so extensive that whenever they do an audit, if anything's wrong, they're going to find it. Yeah. So they, you're, you have records of everything that's ha happened inside the facility. Yes. And how, I guess, how have you competed in this market? I mean, are there other folks that are are providing these um, synthetic materials at, at this volume? Like, where is the landscape right now in terms of competitors? Where do you think it's going to be? Give me a sense of, of this side of the cannabis market. So the biggest one that you would hear is GW Pharmaceuticals. I believe Jazz Pharmaceuticals purchased them for $7 billion. Yes, it was a very big number. With their sole drug being a phytobotanically derived CBD that took them quite a long time to get approved due to the fact that it's a phytobotanical yeah. and it has quite a number of different molecules in there, which is not to say that you can't do that. It's just that it's very difficult because you have to identify all of them and prove that all of them are safe, which is a very extensive undertaking represented by that $7 billion figure. Mm -hmm. uh, so as to, I, I can't really speculate on what I think the market's going to be, but buying a pharmaceutical company that has only one approved drug for one indication for $7 billion <laughs> indicates to me that they suspect it'll be a quite, quite a market. Yeah. Yeah. And how, I guess, how is this, how is this different from other tra traditional historic drug development processes? I mean, is this just another, you know, molecule that we can extract, you know, we originally extracted from, from plants, from, from plant sources that we're now doing synthetically, like how, give me a little, like this is a pretty standard way this happens in this industry or is this unique and different in some way? 
So anytime you're working with a phytobotanically derived material, it becomes a little bit different because you can't patent a natural molecule. Yeah. And so that limits the IP space. So people will be developing analogs and that'll take a lot longer because then you're starting from scratch and you're trying to say, right. Generally nature doesn't make things for us. We find things in nature that do things well for us and then we make them better. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that will probably be the case for cannabinoids as well for any given indication, maybe not broadly as broadly as CBD could be uh, indicated, but for any given task, we can probably make a better molecule that would be able to be patented. But until then, the lower hanging fruit is to make really good delivery systems for these drugs that can't be patented because you can patent the formulation, right? So that IP, so such as I referenced the IP that Radius Health has purchased, which is mm -hmm. uh, based off the oral solution. So that oral solution, that drug product is intellectually protected. However, the, the CBD API itself is not. The way that we make it is, but not the product itself. So, so you, you've, you're protecting the kind of the process that you use to get to this final product, even if the final product is not sort of protectable because it's essentially is a phytocannabinoid. Right. Got it. And if you look at the regulatory frameworks or the kind of situation we're in, what, what's most interesting or what, what do you kind of track most closely? I mean, is this state level regulations? Is it the federal level? Is it federal legalization? Is it, you know, how these different agencies are going to get involved? What, what are the things that you're kind of keeping an, uh, an ear on in terms of, you know, how the market's playing out? So the DEA and FDA are kind of, trap waiting on legislation to tell them what to do, I think. So yeah. I don't think that either of them want to make any sort of move because that, that puts them in the position of possibly being the bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, and the DEA is obviously focused on opiates, which are a greater concern anyways. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, right. Like I think a D9 THC rescheduling is an order. Obviously there is therapeutic use. There's been therapeutic use for 30 plus years. Mm-hmm. And so I think a rescheduling at the very least is in order. But if the FDA comes out and says that, you know, someone can do a generally recognized a safe study on cannabidiol, then I mean, that opens up our market as well. As of right now, we don't play that game because we have the pharmaceutical market and it's kind of niche. And so we, why compete? Mm -hmm. But if the FDA says the reins are off, then I mean... I guess it depends on if people care about that last 0.7% purity. <laughs> and should they? I mean, what's your take on, on really the difference from a health safety effectiveness point of view? If you can get it from a good facility and it's actually pure CBD isolate from the mm -hmm. plant and it has that 0.7%, I personally wouldn't be bothered by it. But again, it's not about what bothers me. It's about what bothers the FDA. Yeah, depending on how they regulate it. So what you would need to do... To, to meet that standard then would be that the other two molecules in there would need to be recognized as safe, which they, in, in theory, should be. They behave the same as CBD. Yeah, yeah. And where, um, any other interesting areas that you're developing for or what, what's kind of on your roadmap uh, in the coming quarters, the coming years? So our, our primary focus has been, uh, the, towards for research this year, has been expanding our ability to make... Um, synthetic THC. So synthetic THC is incredibly difficult to make due to, so once you get really pure THC, it is very, very unstable. So if mm -hmm. you 
the, the more pure the THC, the faster it degrades. And so like, if you think of like a vape cartridge turning black over the course of like a couple of days, yeah. um, that that's the, the THC slowly turning into, um, CBN mm-hmm. and oxidizing and the, the molecule does not like to exist. And so we're developing a new process that will have a better packaging system and should essentially preclude any air. And therefore our, our current impurity profile is probably one of the best I've ever seen for, um, for THC. Yeah. And it's just keep preventing it from oxidizing, right? If you can keep it from hitting oxygen, hitting the air, then you'll maintain the, the life of the molecule. So it's, it's also the fact that D9 turns into Delta-8 very, very easily. Yeah. And so whenever, especially, again, coming back to the pharmaceutical issue, right? So if you're making a pharmaceutical that can only have 0.1% of an impurity and you're at 0.8 or 0.08%, yeah. and that impurity is going to grow, then you can't, have, like, you can't have any of it in there. Yeah, if it grows at all, then now you're no longer compliant. Yeah, it's just it, it's too too close to the edge. And so it, with D9 specifically, one of the primary issues is finding D8 and CBN in your product. CBN's harder to avoid, and D8's harder to get rid of. So you want to start out with less D8 and then avoid CBN. And Got it. right now, that those are... They sound like relatively simple challenges, but they are not. <laughs> yeah, it's particularly at scale. I mean, particularly once you're dealing with producing exactly. this at any any reasonable level, it's one thing to do it, you know, on a lab bench. Um, exactly. Yeah, interesting, Matthew. This has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about the business, more about the work you're doing, what's the best way to get that information? You can email me at mmore at benuvia dot com. So m m o o r e at B-E-N-U-V-I-A.com. Great. And we'll make sure that uh, information is in the show notes. Uh, Matthew, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, Download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.